Oh my goodness, scorekeepers, it has been a long time. We should not have left you, but we did. <laughs> and we're back, we're back. I know we are currently on our Sagittarius season sabbatical. Happy birthday, Paige. Thank you. Happy birthday, Rocky. Thank you. <laughs> um, happy birthday, Mrs. Bynum. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, but we wanted to, you know, not leave you hanging for the entire month of December. So what we have decided to do is just come back um, for a short show um, that highlights all of the funnest moments that's not a word the most fun <laughs> <laughs> fun and funniest moments um of the score over the last year because we have had so much fun doing this uh show for all of you and with each other and frankly i feel like we should celebrate because 2021 has been hard af <laughs> I agree. <laughs> we deserve nice things for me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, this is just a retrospective. This first episode will cover some of the earlier episodes. So, if you are a, a new convert, um, you know, this is a chance to um, get a little taste of the score in the spring and summer. Um, and if you wanted to, while we're on this break, you know, go back to the archives. They are free. They're not behind the paywall. You know, <laughs> go for it. Have fun. Um, we won't. We won't be mad. Um, but yeah. So please, uh, you know, check out this wonderful clip show. But before we get to it, um, on a a less much sadder note. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we, uh, we did have an elder in the community pass away recently. Um, so Paige, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So as we record this, um, a couple days ago, uh, elder in the Twin Cities by the name of Bill Cotman uh, has gone on to join the ancestors. And so we wish him a rest in power and rest in peace. Um, he was by all accounts, just like a, a pillar, a mentor to so many artists in this community, though I was not close to him and didn't know him well personally. He is one of the first elders that like I crossed paths with when I um, uh, arrived in the Twin Cities. And I think that's like a testament to like how much he shows up, like tributes are pouring in at this point through um, social media or through you know, the messaging threads that I'm part of and things mm. like that. And it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you know that this person like just is deeply embedded and deeply loved, but you really, really see it. Like I, I saw one person comment that like, they don't know if they know anyone who is as well loved or as widely loved as, as him. Um, so yeah, we definitely, um, lost uh, a giant in that way um 
And I encourage you to check out his work as a photographer, as a writer. Uh, he's also a fellow bison, HU. Oh, okay. I did not, yeah, I just, <laughs> hey. I just found that out through like reading like biography, a biography about him. Um, so yeah, rest in, rest in peace, rest in power, Mr. Bill Cotman, um, and sending all love and comfort and good thoughts towards his family as well. Um, he's behind a wife who they've been married for a very long time. I believe they met at Howard, like wow. over 50 years they've been married. Wow. Um, and she, um, Miss Beverly Cotman is also a fantastic artist in her own right. Um, and uh, his uh, children and grandchildren as well. So we just wrap them all in love and send good thoughts their way. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, rest in power, Mr. Cotman. And this show is for you. All right, let's get to it, y'all. So first up, we'll start with our very first guest on the show, the amazing, incredible violinist, uh, Emilia Mettenbrink, who uh, started the Tiny Balcony Concert Series um, during the pandemic in order to uh, bring some music and uh, joy um, and life and laughter and all of those good things um, to her neighbors um, during uh, the early part of the pandemic when we were all online. Lockdown. And so here she is talking a little bit about um, how that really um, awesome, <laughs> exciting uh, series got started um, and how it has transformed. And so I, the whole rest of the summer was in and out of those feelings of like, am I safe? Are mm -hmm. we all safe? Is this good? What's what happens next? Like it just felt like this constant feeling of doom isn't right, but just like something might be over here that I need to make sure I'm, you know, accounting for and all of my, whatever I'm doing. And I became pretty vocal on my tiny balcony concerts, <laughs> um, you know, telling people that it matters if you have those signs in your yard and like us people of color, it, like it does make a difference. I feel safer in my community. I feel more accepted in my community. If I see that those signs of, um, unity from my community around me. So um, that was something that it made me want to speak louder and to speak to that, even though I was supposed to be just playing happy music from, from the trees. I suppose. <laughs> 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 so yeah, that's how that felt to me. It was just like, I, I can't be silent any longer. Not that I was silent before, but yeah. So was that part of the inspiration behind starting the Tiny Concert Series? I mean, I guess for, for people who don't know, um, maybe you could just explain um, a little bit about. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah. last summer was weird, y'all. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. It started from the beginning. <laughs> so I got done with the Sphinx tour. Sphinx Virtuosi got done with tour on March 11th. And I, they literally dropped me off at the airport wow. at like three in the morning in Utah and said, bye-bye, and we'll see you in a month because we were supposed to play with the Minnesota Orchestra. And I came home. I went immediately from the airport. My partner picked me up, dropped me off at 
the opera center for my first opera rehearsal that morning to start at 10 a.m. And I was five minutes late (laughs) because yay. Um, And then by that night, we had all received messages from the opera staff saying, nope, not going to do that anymore. And everything's finished and COVID was the new life. And um, I, I already said I teach yoga and I went to teach my yoga class on Saturday and then Saturday evening, I got, uh, we all got called into the office, either virtually or actually in person. I happened to be teaching. So I was there and the managers said, we're closing the doors. And so then there, there went my like Zen (laughs) happy second life. And I was like, Oh my gosh. I mean, that must've been terrifying. Yeah. And then Monday morning I woke up and I had an ear infection or what I thought was an ear infection. My ear hurt. And I was like, Hmm, that's strange. And I went to the Minute Clinic because we live in the great state of Minnesota and you can just go and they check you out. And they gave me some antibiotics and I thought everything would be okay, but it wasn't. And my ear kept hurting and hurting worse. And I went back in and they didn't know what it was. And then I went back in again on Sunday and was like, listen, something's really wrong. I don't, this isn't right. I'm losing my hearing at this point. And Thank goodness for this beautiful nurse at CVS on a Sunday morning who was like, I think that this other thing is wrong and that's why you're feeling the way you are. And she gave me some meds and said, but you need to call the doctor because I can't really do what I should do because I'm not a doctor. So you have to call your main doctor in the morning. By Sunday night, I didn't have any feeling or ability to move the left side of my face. It was drooping like I'd had a stroke and I couldn't hear it all out of my ear. And I was terrified. So turns out in the ER on Monday morning, I had... um, Uh, shingles and it had infected the inside of my ear. That's where it had decided to live. And it attached itself to the nerves that control the left side of my face and had paralyzed part of my body. So yeah, I was in, I had yeah MRIs and I was on lots of fun medications and it was as scary as life could be for a violinist who all of a sudden couldn't hear and Oh, by the way, I couldn't eat because I would drool and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was like, it lasted for like a month and I saw a lot of doctors and then I started to feel better. And as you can tell, I can smile with both sides of my face again. So that's awesome. But it took about a month. Um, And so at the end, very end of April, I hadn't touched my violin in a month. And I was like, I wonder if I can still play. Like that was weird. And I wonder if I can hear and what that's going to sound like because my ear was all affected and whatever. And um, so I just one night walked out on my balcony and was like, let's see if I can play Bach because I don't even know if I can play Bach. And I didn't, I kind of told my next door neighbors, like, I'm going to go outside and play and please listen because they're on the board for the opera. And so I was like, just so somebody's listening and they texted me afterwards and said, oh, that was great. And our, the neighbors on the other side said, you should do it again. So the next night I did it again. And then the next night I did it again. And then someone on next door, you know, that beautiful app um, yeah. to keep your neighbor safe. <laughs> <laughs> they, somebody posted like, oh, I saw this violinist and I was walking my dogs and it changed my day and it made me feel so much better. And I was like, Aww. I think I should keep doing this. So I just kept doing it every night except when it was raining and that lasted until 
mm, July. And then I was like, I don't think I can play every night because I'm running out of stuff to play. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went down to two nights a week and I started inviting my friends. And one night my girlfriend who's a ballerina was like, Hey, can I come and dance? And I was like, yes. And so she came and danced one night. And then by the end of the summer, I was doing like mini ballets on my sidewalk um, with her entire ballet company. And yeah, it was, wow. it was wild all because I thought I wasn't going to be able to play the violin anymore. (laughs) 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 So there you go. That's so cool though. That like, So this February, Minnesota Opera will be presenting at the Ordway um, a production of The Anonymous Lover by Joseph Ballone, a.k.a. Chevalier St. George. And it's so exciting um, to have a work by a Black composer on our stages. And so in episode nine, we were having a chit-chat about him and some of his work. And that led to a conversation that has become... um, Uh, an ever-evolving sort of constant conversation around these parts, which is um, about uh, the acronym BIPOC and why it serves a function, but um, it's not our favorite. So here's a little conversation we had about that. (laughs) We're finally, you know, getting to, like, showcase his music. Um, It's just... It's super exciting and super dope, and I hope it is just the first in of many. Um, <laughs> Amen. Of many BIPOC uh, composers um, <laughs> <laughs> that we have on our stage. Did you like what I did there? I see what you did there. I got it. <laughs> So that elegant segue (laughs) (laughs) brings us to, you know, a topic that we had talked about on an earlier episode, but um, we had uh, a big old technical snafu. um, And so we weren't able to to include that, um, that conversation in an earlier episode, but we wanted to revisit it because it keeps coming up again and again. And that is around the term BIPOC um, and how, I don't know what the, what's the word I'm looking for? Cumbersome? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> to say that the term least. can be. Clunky. Yeah. It, it's not um, mellifluous in any way. Like it doesn't, it doesn't sound good. I don't like how it looks when I see it written and it never really feels like it's doing the work that I want it to do other than being a catch-all right like it working on the EDI side I frequently find myself in a situation where I need to have a series of terms that I can go to that cover um, a number of groups that are not white, marginalized, underrepresented, et cetera, right? And I tend to go for people of color. I I feel like its historical framing is one that I'm a little bit more familiar with and and I feel like I have a little bit more fluency um, 
with exactly what it signifies to broad groups of people. Um, and that's just because I am a person who loves words and I you know, have followed the use of the term from its original usage in the 19th century through um, more recent iterations. And I was thinking about this um, when I was listening to the podcast where, Paige, you were talking about um, the Kambahi River Collective and thinking about at contemporaneously the use of the term women of color, which dates back also mm-hmm. to the late 70s. Um, yeah. and, and that's the, the spirit in which I use people of color, even if I don't actively identify as a person of color. I am a yeah. black person, in case you didn't know. Um, and that's the, the term that I'm the most comfortable with. But I just don't like BIPOC. Like, I, I don't like it. I, I Politically, I feel like it's off, right? Um, I don't like the weird separating out of histories. And I would feel comfortable in a different way, maybe with IPOC, if we were saying indigenous and people of color, in the sense that indigeneity is a, is, you know, can be described as a characteristic of people who are not racialized in the same way. But even that, like, my preference always is just to list the groups that I'm talking about, seeing people, naming them, saying what it is. Can, you can't always do that in a, in a paragraph for work, but that is my preference. Um, but boy, do I not like the word. Well, I think for those, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what BIPOC stands for. But in, <laughs> <laughs> but in case you don't. In case it's in your case, first episode. In case it's your first episode. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, the term uh, BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, sometimes Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, sometimes Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. And this conversation really got started between the three of us because of an article um, that Lee shared with us in uh, Newsweek that came out in April um, by Christopher McDonald Dennis, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, and Andrea Plaid, who's an author whose work on race, gender, sex, and sexuality has appeared in places like Vogue.com and In These Times, On These Issues, um, and Rewire. And basically, you know, they're they, they argue that, you know, the acronym is very well-intentioned and it's uh, designed to extract and emphasize the particular histories and experiences of black people um, and um, the many indigenous na- nations here in the United States. Um, and to really sort of, you know, sometimes there, you know, the, the, the term, you know, people of color can be sort of this catch-all that sort of, you know, tends to obfuscate the issues that concern black people um, and indigenous people, or even sort of um, anti-blackness in other um, communities of color. Um, but yeah, I I tend to agree with you, Lee, because it just, it, you know, as, you know, I, th- I think they reference the Audre Lorde quote in this article about, you know, the, there's no hierarchy of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really sort of is the thing that, that resonates with me about it because I, it's just, especially in 2021, you know, of course, like, you know, 
everything that has been happening, you know, in the last year when it comes to black folks in America, I mean, the last 400 years, but specifically, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the last year, you know, as George, and, and especially in this particular community, Dante Wright and George mm-hmm. Floyd and, you know, it, 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 what just happened in Uptown, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that is that, you know, it's, it's, it's important to spotlight. It's also just as important to shine a light on everything that's happening in indigenous communities, the way that right. these oil and gas companies are just continuing to drive pipelines through sacred lands, all of the social, medical, economic upheaval that is just continually happening on, you know, in, uh, native territories um, and reservations across the country. But also what I what makes me kind of skeevy is just like in 2021, just everything that's happening with our Latinx siblings, you know, especially down at the Southern border, the steep, you know, rise of violence, um, incidents against, you know, the AAPI community here in the United States. And it feels like it, it, it erases that. And I, and I understand the, you know, the good intentions behind it but it just I don't know it, it it just it makes me feel kind of like well why can't we just be just much more specific in our language you yeah. know and and yeah. I feel like it it, it I don't want to say you know it's like you and I leave we had a, a conversation with the actor T. Michael Rambo mm-hmm. yesterday and I was talking about the community, the community, the community. And, like, finally he stopped me and he was like, could you be a little bit more specific about what community you're talking about? And I was like, you are absolutely right. And he was like, no, I didn't mean to be, like, you know, like, you know, harsh. And I was like, no, you're no, not being you're harsh, right. but you're absolutely right. I need to be very much more specific about what we're talking about. And it, it BIPOC strikes me the same way. It's like, can we, let's just be, like, yeah. you know, specific about yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking about black people. Let's talk about black people. We're talking about, you know... Um, you know, Latinx people, let's talk about Latinx people. And just, like, name these groups. Because I think when we do that, you know, we just sort of give the issues much more visibility and much more power. Mm-hmm. And we're empowering people to actually, like, get their hands dirty and help and act. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Paige? I think, I mean, everything that both of y'all just said, (laughs) there's so many, I mean, uh, the first time we talked about this, I said this, but I'll say it again because it still happens when I see BIPOC, I think bisexual people of color is just what my brain does. (laughs) That is the very very first time I saw it. That's what I thought. I was like, that is so specific. Still. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because it was, it was like, it was a, it was a comment on like a Facebook post. Like we had announced the season a couple of years ago and somebody was like, you need to be telling more BIPOC stories. And I was like, are there are there operas about bisexual people? I mean, yes. <laughs> You're like yes, but that's very specific. But yes, <laughs> I mean that was exactly my yeah my thoughts. So there's still like just that little like one second correction that needs to happen in my brain every time I read it. Um, and I, I mean, one of the things that immediately struck me and maybe because this is a topic that like I've been thinking about a lot and um, 
I once interned at the Smithsonian uh, Museum for Indigenous Peoples and like I'm doing like some work that's specifically trying to unite black and indigenous communities right now to have better relations to see each other as uh, relatives and not just our more like contentious histories. But anyway, the first one of the first things I noticed, I was like, huh, black and indigenous aren't two mutually exclusive terms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. indigenous and POC aren't two mm-hmm. mutually exclusive terms either. A person of any color can be indigenous is not a racial identity. Right. right. So that was interesting. <laughs> that part is still interesting to me. And there's probably a whole, there's a whole other conversation there about indigenous peoples and being more specific than just indigenous or native when you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think a thing that I don't, I don't know what, what, irks me more if it's just the original <laughs> what the term attempts to do or then how I also see it being used because I don't know how many times where um, I'm reading or, or hearing about something that's really specific to black folks or where the main ones experiencing it um, especially when it's specific to black women it somehow becomes BIPOC and I'm like hmm interesting how we're just using (laughs) where we kind of like use it to take the specificity away and to include try to include everyone uh and that sometimes that's some like an admirable thing like Mm -hmm. you do want to say our experiences are are connected like black we're talking about black people right now but these folks go through this too um, but even if you're going to do that, just name them, just, <laughs> just, just name them. Um, who exactly, who, who are you, who are you talking about? Um, yeah, I think it just serves us better to be, to be more specific and we could talk about how even within black people don't necessarily all want to be, just be called black. Yeah, like absolutely. I personally, I'm fine with that. I am black. Yes. Black be black, black. I love it. <laughs> However, other people <laughs> would rather you be much more specific. Like if you uh-huh. are talking about them and their culture or their people and you say BIPOC, but they are mm-hmm. Nigerian, but they are Dominican, they are whatever. They'll be like, mm, actually, <laughs> could we not use, could we not, exactly. could we not use that? And I find myself having the same reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like a lot of it is, you know, certainly well-intentioned and, and meant to serve a function, right? Like the term Alana mm-hmm. that was being used a lot a few years ago. I think with certain terms, there's no way around that you noticeably are leaving people out, like with Alana, which was always part of the challenge I had with it. And then with BIPOC, like maybe airing so far on the other side that like you you lose any sense of nuance. And yet, as a person who for a living writes about people who have a certain set of experiences because we're not white, I also know that we need a word there, right? It just needs to be one that we've sort of I don't know, wrestled with some of the political dynamics of it. And I don't know if either of you knows who Angelo Falcone is. Um, he's a scholar who actually taught at Columbia for a while, and I, I believe he's he's now deceased, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that 
he has written about that I actually thought made a ton of sense was we have been trying to put the term in ahead of the conversation around what the term is supposed to do for the people who represent it. And I think that's yes. where there always feels like there's some kind of, I don't know, like not enough is happening with something. It's like these words divorced from their actual social context and the heft that comes with representing the histories of trauma that that all of our bodies are, are like physical you know, markers of. I, I, I think there's just a little bit more. You can't just toss out an acronym without the everything else coming along with it, I feel like. So we like to play a little game here on the score called Fire That Cannon. And uh, so we take um, perhaps some of the more uh, problematic works uh, in the canon and talk about whether or not there are uh, responsible, safe ways to present uh, some of those works or whether or not we need to just uh, sort of maybe think about, you know, not not mounting these these productions anymore. Um, so for the very first time we played the game, we were joined by our friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Pablo Siqueiros, and uh, had a little chat about Madama Butterfly. So enjoy. So today's first opera is Madama Butterfly, mm. composed mm. by Giacomo Puccini. Libretto by Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giacosa, written in 1904. Madama Butterfly tells the story of uh, 19th century Japan. An American Navy officer named Pinkerton marries a 15-year-old girl named Chocho San. Okay. <laughs> 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 Just kind of hangs in the air, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> okay. Never intending to take his vows seriously, so f boy, he leaves. Uh, <laughs> he leaves his butterfly behind, promising to return. When he does finally return, it is discovered his bride has borne him a child. The officer has, in the meantime, married quote a real American bride unquote, and visits Butterfly with his new wife, <laughs> so that they can take her child from her and raise him as an American. And I'm very sensitive to these issues because the Portia Williams news came out <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> who wants to start? <laughs> you know, when you just hear the plot like that, it sounds like a Maury Povich episode. Like, it's it, so it much. It really does. A mess. <laughs> it really does. My God. <laughs> and yet, this is an A title that is performed regularly in houses around the world. Um, you know, our AAPI siblings have said numerous times, <laughs> this, is, this is not cool. <laughs> and yet, but so the question remains, you know, looking at it through sort of a civic, dramatur civic dramatological... Did I say that right? Probably not. Dramaturgical? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Civic, civic dramaturgical lens. Um, what do you all think? Do you think this is something that 
we can perform in 2021? Is there a way that doesn't actively harm our members of our community? So based on the framing of that particular question, can it be performed? Could it be done? Could someone figure it out? I think absolutely, right? Like, I I think there are a lot of smart people out there who take on problematic pieces and and wrestle them to the ground. I, I think in terms of an answer of who has done that or what would it look like, that becomes a much harder thing, right? Like, so many of these issues are very thorny and very uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I, I do think that it is possible for people to figure stuff like this out. It, I think the question for me with something like Madama Butterfly is, A, what is the appetite for that? B, where are people interested in seeing this sort of either reappraisal or recontextualization of it, and then see who who may be best positioned to take on something like this, right? So I, I, I do believe that it is possible. I don't I don't know that I am honestly the audience for it, though. Like, the the story itself, to me, is not one that holds a lot of appeal, as beautiful as the music is. Um, And honestly, even when the story is retitled Miss Saigon, I find it deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) it's not one of the ones that does it for me. And yet, I do think that there is a possibility of capturing aspects of this and presenting them in a way that lays bare everything that is problematic about the actual situation that, you know, Puccini et al. has given us and, and still have a piece that people are able to leave talking about. I don't know how they're going to feel, but I am also a person who doesn't believe that we don't take on art because it's problematic or uncomfortable, right? I, I think the my particular opinion of a lot of these things are that they are of their own context and we are in a different moment. And if you just like take the example of TV, like something that was produced in 2016 and you watch it today and you hear so many things and you're like, oh God, nobody would say that now. This feels so uncomfortable. And yet it is representative of the moment or of the people who produced it. So do you throw out the baby with the bathwater or do you present it in a way that you confront what it is that is unsavory or problematic or disgusting and, and let that conversation be the thing that happens before or after, hopefully not during the piece, but that you take away. And, and like my inclination is the latter, but I really don't, I don't know how you do this piece and then make it something that people would feel comfortable with considering the child bride elements, the mm-hmm. orientalist elements, the the complete disempowerment of, of women, the blatant racism. Like There are other pieces of it that I, <laughs> I don't know what you do with, but I do have faith that there are really brilliant directors and designers, performers and dramaturgs out there who could give us something that would be of this moment that we could take something from. 
Mm. So a couple of things kind of come to mind. Um, and I hear everything that you're saying, Lee, and, and at, at the same time, my mind goes to this is taking up space where something better could be. Um, in terms of there's, I mean, there will be a lot of people who who make a similar argument of you know the but the music is so beautiful. Um, then I would say like do it as a concert. Um, I I don't need to see this story happen, um, even in a reimagined way. I I have yet to see uh, a version of this reimagined or not that I feel satisfied with, um, or even not enraged by. <laughs> um, so I, especially the the biggest part of this too is, you're never going to have a cast that is fully representative of the populations that are supposed to be. Uh, in this story um, that that I feel like is and, and not to say that because you couldn't but because most companies are not going to make the effort to make that possible um, and so you ultimately end up with people in really problematic costumes and makeup that they should definitely never be uh, in to begin with, no matter how stylized or really trying to be authentic to to the original style. It also it, it always ends up being something that's that's hugely problematic. Um, and then there's also the the people that are, that will say like, well, you can't change a lot about this opera because then it's going away from the, what the composers and librettists intended. Um, and so kind of advocating for that purity of the art form um, where the works of dead white composers are just untouchable um, or unchangeable in any way. Otherwise, you're, you're doing something that they didn't intend. Um, so from that kind of perspective, the, the opera industry, I do feel like, is generally inflexible when it comes to making substantial changes. And when they do, they're never really satisfactory, in my opinion. And also when the composer's, like, intentions were to do racism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can we not? <laughs> but also, like, the, the educator side of me is like, no, like, we should be able to talk about it and all of that. But ultimately, like, companies are profiting from problematic art. And I would rather them f give that money to someone who really deserves it. <laughs> Wait. Before I give my answer, are either of you keeping it or firing the cannon for sure? I'm, I'm trying to tell what the decision is so far. <laughs> I'm firing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as an historian, I'm probably not going to shoot too many things out of the cannon. Um, but that doesn't. But I, I would like to say, as a contestant on this show, and I'm trying to win the $10 million or whatever the, the little prize is at <laughs> I the end. I didn't say that there was $10 million. <laughs> However many million it is. You need to, you need to give me a raise if it's $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> if I get this $10 million, you might get the raise. Um, okay. If, if we, I guess the way I think of some of it, though, 
is that the the fear of presentism, right, where we sen- seemingly lose the sense of things in their historical context, and because certain things cannot do not speak to us in a given moment, the idea of eliminating it from existence is not something I'm I'm crazy about. And there are pieces that I have absolutely fallen in love with that when they came out in their own time, for whatever reason, they didn't fit. They didn't meet the moment, right? So, like, I don't necessarily think that this should be a, a piece that nobody ever does again. But to Pablo's point, I think it's a piece that isn't being done correctly or well or satisfactorily, and it should probably not be done until someone can do it satisfactorily. And that's going to shift depending upon the context and the time, if, if that makes sense. So I, I know I sort of skirted around your question, Paige, but I, I, I think that's, the, that's just kind of where I'm landing with it. Like, I will stand by the cannon with the lit match, but I don't know if I'm going to drop it on the fuse for this one. <laughs> uh, I am going to uh, fire the cannon um, at least um, temporarily. I'll say for me, I think there's a moratorium on this piece for everybody who is not Asian and cannot speak to the themes. <laughs> that is that that's really it in my mind. Like I'm not interested in seeing it done the traditionally anymore. But there are um I think some of the things that it brings up could certainly still be relevant, but um it wouldn't be up to a white person to tell that. We don't need any more white uh Cho Cho Sands. We don't need <laughs> any more like oh, yeah, we don't need <laughs> any more white men directing it, especially when this piece is specifically speaking to mm-hmm. a particular type of like violence that comes from white men mm-hmm. um towards Asian women. And so I'm just there's a moratorium on it for for almost everybody. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the question is, <laughs> are we keeping it or are we firing the cannon? It sounds like we've got, Lee, one vote for keep it. Am I right? hmm And then two votes for fire the cannon? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I guess we're firing the cannon. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to opera number two. So this past June, uh, Lee moderated a panel conversation presented by the Dream Unfinished and the Harlem Chamber Players called Remembrance and Restitution, uh, where he talked with history professors Ashley Jackson, Ashley Lawrence Sanders, and Jasmine A. Young, all about the Tulsa Race Massacre and uh, Juneteenth, and uh, why they are still important uh, here in the present, their impacts um, on the past, and of course, uh, the future of of black Americans everywhere. So here's a little snippet of that conversation. Why do the Tulsa race massacre and Juneteenth still matter, especially right now in our current political climate? Mm. Well, I mean, I could, I could get started. Um, 
I think that we're actually in this really interesting moment where uh, just the the violence of the state has led people to really reconsider and to revisit a lot of historical events and also sort of Black commemorative traditions. Um, and in a weird way, the Tulsa massacre to me has been having like this moment, which feels like a weird thing to say about a really violent event, but it's been having this moment over the last like five to 10 years or so in popular culture and like social media history. I don't know what way you want to call it, but I've seen a lot about like Black Wall Street right. and, you know, everything about Black Wall Street just coming up again and again. I saw it on a T-shirt, a T-shirt on Instagram a picture of Black Wall Street burning. Like, so there's a way in which it's also weirdly become commercialized like Juneteenth. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, But I think that it's important because people are connecting the dots between this long history of racial violence in the United States. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the racial violence that is being conducted now by the police and other agents of the state is not a new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That Black people's lives have always been endangered that, you know, Juneteenth celebrates like the time when, you know, the slaves in Texas realize that they're free, that they get this, you know, that they're free finally. And it's like the last spot of freedom. I'm putting that in quotes because I'm a historian because <laughs> uh, I know there are still people enslaved after like, you know, it's complicated. Right. But the reality is, I think, too, it's like it's celebrating this. But I saw a lot of people saying freedom is still this fight. Tulsa mm-hmm. proves that freedom is still the fight. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis rules their freedom is still the fight. Like it's still like an ongoing project. And one of the interesting things I think about studying these freedom celebrations is that black people knew it was an ongoing project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they knew nothing was finished. They were yeah. like, we're no longer in chains, but they knew that like these same sort of battles would continue. Yeah. And you know, to your point, it it has been very interesting, right? This almost sustained interest in the last couple of years in these events. And, and, you know, obviously during the, the Trump administration, it felt like there were a, it felt like a different level of emphasis yeah. on the disenfranchisement of black people. But part of my surprise is being an historian of popular culture is seeing the ways that like Tulsa race massacre itself has really appeared quite a bit in film recently, right? We had it in Lovecraft Country. We also had it in The Watchmen. And it's been very interesting to see that juxtaposed with science fiction, right? Because it's not science fiction. Like Uh this is very much like in our present, not just in our memories. I was kind of excited to see it in in The Watchmen. Partly because, you know, it was coupled with this, this uh, Skip Gates, uh, what was it? The, the Bureau of Reconciliation. Yeah, that's like the, the Heritage Center. Uh, like, yeah, you know, the Heritage Center. Yeah. And you can kind of go back. And so there was this way in which, as historians, I think we're always kind of interested in how do we make this history accessible right. and really kind of matter for our present day. And they, right. I think that they did this interesting thing. And I was like really excited about it, you know, and I'm not always excited about the ways in which um, TV and films kind of take up these historical moments because they just decide to butcher them. They're like, oh, these books over here, I'm not going to read them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, <laughs> and we spend all this time writing these books and being in the archive and trying to get it right. And then they're just like, no. Um, but I was I was really fascinated by how they took it up. And, I, and, and what it ended up doing is getting all of these new people to know about this particular moment in time, right? And I thought that that was really fascinating because again, 
it created all of these new conversations that I was having with people who, who may not even know this history. And so I thought that that was really cool. Um, yeah, no, and I think, you know, um, Ashley, uh, you talked about how, you know, current events that we're seeing sort of violence against black bodies in a very different kind of, on a different stage. Um, and it concerns me the almost sensationalization, if that's a word, um, of such uh, continued uh, violence and oppression and then seeing it in popular culture. I mean, yes, it's important that we're now putting these events on people's, people's minds and on their radars. Um, but, you know, the question that we always have to ask ourselves is, is it putting it also in people's hearts or is it something are we the the or or, or are we simply enjoying the viewing of black pain right which feels like it's an ongoing question especially lately in popular culture right you had this um, brouhaha on social media about two weeks ago with Lena Waithe's newest project. And it's an interesting way of commodifying Black pain. And I think that's something that America has been very, very good at over the years, right? But it's coming at the same time as we're trying to package Juneteenth as this easily portable celebration of whatever we want to overlay on it right now. And I'm, I'm curious how all of you see like that piece of this, right? And and maybe also why it makes sense as a bookend right now with the Tulsa race massacre. I, you know, I might have a slightly controversial view of that, <laughs> which is that I, it was just so weird to me how Juneteenth became this national thing. I think of it so specifically as Texas, right? Like it is so specific to me as Texas history not just as like a historian, but someone who grew up hearing about Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. I grew up in South Carolina and emancipation day is January 1st. Thank you. Like that's the day that the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation yeah. was read out. And that's the day. And then like, I know that different states have different things. Like in New York, it was like in July, mm-hmm. right? Like in, in a lot of places, it's August 1st after, you know, Caribbean, right. like emancipation in August. So like, it's, you know, there are like very specific local histories around this that I felt like kind of got erased Mm -hmm. by everybody like jumping Mm -hmm. on Juneteenth. Like, and I think the local histories tell a story, which is that it was not a single moment, right? Like there was not one moment where all black people were free in the U.S. at that single moment that like there was there was differences, right? Like the North had their days because people were free there decades before. And South Carolina, where you had Union troops come through early and start to, you know, start some of the plantations are liberated and burnt down. You have people free. You have, you know, soldiers in South Carolina reading the Emancipation Proclamation about what that means for them. Juneteenth happens because Texas doesn't get you like there's just there are a lot of local histories and the other like not part that I'm like, maybe this isn't as controversial is like the corporatization element of it just felt so weird to me coming off of a lot of my weirdness around like corporations being like, we support black businesses is like, you know, they were like all taking that in as their thing. Um, Everybody getting Juneteenth off being like the new push and like no disrespect to all the black activists who push for that. But I feel like that was kind of like a weird moment for me as like we're all coalescing around this day off mm. as like a thing to like say at the end of a protest. But it's like, is it a day off? Like, you know, who, you know, is it a holiday? Like, what are we celebrating? 
if people want to celebrate, it's fine. But it felt like this weird kind of like, and at the end of all this protest about, you know, the death of black folks, here right. is a holiday. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like a true cynic, which I So back in episode nine, we were absolutely blessed to be joined by um, the incredible composer and activist, Dr. Nkeru Ukoye. Um, and we had a, a conversation about so many things, um, but one of the things that was so impactful was when she talked about um, her piece, Black Bottom, and um, how important it was um, while she was writing that piece to actually go out into the community um, uh, Black Bottom in Detroit and talk to the, the folks who live there about their community, about its history, about their history. Um, and so that led to a conversation about what, um, you know, opera companies, arts organizations can do to really um, engage with the communities around them. And so here's what uh, Dr. Okoye had to say about that. Well, one of the things that, you know, really struck me um, when you were talking about Black Bottom is going into the community and interviewing folks and really bringing them in and making them a part of the piece um, and, and just using, you know, their experiences and their history um, as, as inspiration for that piece. And so I'm just curious, in your opinion, what are some more of the things that people in sort of our positions um, as administrators, as sort of these institutions, what are some of the things that we can do to create a more, you know, inclusive and diverse and equitable um, opera industry and, and spaces for artists? Mm. Well, um the first thing is really to address the repertoire issue. Mm -hmm. If you really want people to come in, um, um, if you want people to come into your space, you need to make them feel welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so important to make people feel welcome, you know? Um, and as arts administrators, you all can only do, you all can do your part and the community has to do their part, you know? And it's the community, the white community, the black community, the Asian community, you know, all of that, the, the Latinx community, they all have to do their part. But as arts administrators, you know, um, if you, I think the, 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 the first thing that you're doing, and I love that, uh, you're doing this series, you know, you're talking about these issues. And I think, you know, I think that's the first thing. It's, it's, it's a wonderful first step. Um, the second, I would also say, is to realize that one of my, one of my girlfriends and I were, were talking about this. And the saying is simply that not all skin folk is kinfolk. No, that's right. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> um, you know, when people are looking to hire people, you know, in in these important roles, you know, um, it's as if okay. 
now that I've done this, we've accomplished, you know, uh, we've, we've accomplished our diversity goals. So, well, what if that's a skinfolk who's not a kinfolk? You know, have, have, you, have you addressed it? Why is it only one person? Um, you know, how are, how are you screening these folks? I think that, you know, as opera companies, as um, arts organizations are looking to broaden, to diverse, diversify, to do whatever, you know, I think that a discussion has to be had. What is your view about being an African-American? And just asking that question says a lot, you know? And I think also that there has to be training in terms of what are good responses to that question? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, how, how, so I, I think that's a really, really important, important thing, you know, because if you have only one person who looks at DEI, and a lot of times you get that, it, it, now you also, you know, there was the community engagement person, and now we have more, more people who are doing that. But if you're a community engagement person, if that's your, if that is your um, opening point to the community, and that person doesn't understand that they are kin folk, you have a problem, you know, and the ideas about repertoire and um, um, other issues that come in, other sociological issues that people aren't necessarily looking for because it's this perception, it's the colonial mindset, you know, we're white people, we, we're, we're diverse. Um, black people, they're the minority. So obviously there's only one, <laughs> only one right way to look at it. There's only mm-hmm. one perspective and recognizing that, wait a minute, there are so many differing perspectives. There's so many different paths. Why not find someone who has someone, something that is similar to yours? Find someone who speaks as you do, someone who has your education and then um, has that community mindset. Go for that first. And um, looking at it from that perspective, I think that these, you know, th- these are some key things that can happen. Now, in terms of repertoire, because I believe that you all are in this right space, when we look at repertoire, a lot of people say, oh, okay let's attract black people by showing there's an all black cast to whatever it is, opera, um, say it's Kosi Bantuti, you know? And so let's do it that way. Or let's have an all black cast of La Boheme. And that's just going to get all the black people in. Really? Really? <laughs> right? <laughs> to me, that just fixes it, right? You know, what I find more and more, and what I'm actually seeing on your faces, people respond to stories that include them. So if you have stories that don't include them, and that is all of what your repertoire is, you'd be amazed at how incredibly uninteresting opera becomes, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, 
not everybody is going to have that same exposure, but it doesn't mean that people aren't interested. You know, uh, the people who were in any number of my different pieces and, you know, I've made this career not just in composing, but with community engagement specifically. Um, you know, we, when we were doing Harriet Tubman, we got people who don't even like opera. Now, th those are, you know, now you have to think about this. It's an opera. It's about Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. So um, it's written by a black woman. Now, other people are saying, wow, this is a really hard sell. And I'm like, tell people in opera, just tell them to come in, you know? <laughs> people would come in because it's Harriet Tubman. And then they also see, oh, there are people who look like me that are on the stage. And I also try mm -hmm. to make sure that people who are in the orchestra, you know, are also, you want to be represented all over the place. Mm -hmm. And we had so many people who just, they said, you know, I didn't even like opera and I want to see this piece. <laughs> you know, Black Bottom also. <laughs> I went, you know, all, all of the locations that were inside of there, I made visits because after I interviewed, I made visits to all of these places when I came back. And a lot of these people were not interested. They're everyday people. But um, everyday people doesn't mean underprivileged. It doesn't mean uneducated. It simply means that you haven't engaged them yet. Well, what better way can you possibly have to engage them but to say, hi, I see you, you know, I, I get you and I'm writing this piece for you. So come on in and see it. Seriously, come on in. <laughs> right. yeah, people just come in. So um, the ways in which we engage audiences has to change, you know? And um, the way that we conceive of art, you know, a lot of people would then say, okay, well, let's let's have a piece of music and um, we're gonna have all these other pieces there for everybody, but we're gonna have this special focus piece that really deals with the inner city. And we're gonna, well, since it's so specialized, not a whole lot of people are gonna go. And since it is so specialized, maybe let's just put it off on this small, tiny, you know, the space, which we don't even really use. Mm -hmm. Now, see, then we start getting into where it's so, it's so close. It's like, oh, you got so close. Mm -hmm. Now you tipped over <laughs> into that other thing. What's that R word? <laughs> hey, I think we, I think we know. <laughs> One guess. Doing <laughs> the opera about um, oh I don't know. Give me some person who represents underrepresented, some pop figure who 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 represents underrepresented, well, underprivileged white people. Who who would that be? Just give me give me you know unless you're doing an opera about that for your underprivileged white people, let's talk about equity. Don't do that about black people. So one thing that is really important to us that we were very intentional about when we decided to start this show um, is to always end the show um, with a moment of joy, and specifically a moment of pure black joy. And over the course of the year, that has um, 
expanded um, to include a greater uh, diversity of folks. But, you know, it's it's so important to us because, you know, so often the stories of the people of the global majority here in this country are stories of struggle. Um, so no matter what we're talking about, whether it's, you know, some grave injustice or some awful in, uh, incident of, of racism or, or prejudice or white supremacy um that's rearing its its ugly head um you know in our in our world in our community um it's just really important and special to us to just always you know remind ourselves and all of you um that there's just so much joy um in our experiences um there's just so much music and color and innovation and excitement. And so we always want to, whether it's something that's happening to us personally or something that's, you know, just something newsworthy that's happening out in the world, um, just, you know, end the show on something um, to uh, put a smile on our face um, and always remind us just how just dope it is to be, um, you know, uh, a member of uh, the global majority. So, in honor of that, we just wanted to shout out our very first Pure Black Joy on the very first episode of The Score. And stay tuned because after this clip, we actually have a uh, another Pure Black Joy. And this one is holiday themed. So um, please stay tuned for that and we will see you on the other side. Okay, enjoy. It feels like history. Oh my goodness. We're going to come back to this like when we're seasoned podcasters, season 37. Like, oh, listen to when we were little babies, little baby podcasters. <laughs> but we like to end the show on a note of pure black joy, PB&J, a little snack for your soul. And, you know, we just want to highlight um, black people, organizations, um, who are doing really great things and who are just making us happy and share that happiness with all of you. So, Lee, I'll turn it over to you for this week's PB&J. Yeah, so this is something that I actually just read about a few days ago. Um, there's a, a man named Thaddeus Miles, an African-American gentleman in the Boston area who is actually um, the director of housing services, I believe, at Mass Housing. Um, and he has launched what is called the Black Joy Project, which oh. originated when he sent a picture of him and four friends, all of whom are African-American gentlemen, just laughing. Like, they were clearly in the middle of a conversation, and I feel like it's the thing that I have seen a million times. It reminds me of, like, seeing my dad chatting with his friends about things back in the day, and they're just all laughing, right? And he just started about maybe a year ago emailing the picture around to other folks, just sharing it, because it was one of those things, right, that when you see it, you can't help but smile. And it sort of launched this whole project where other folks are doing similar things, and there's actually, like, a photo contest associated with, like, who's capturing the most interesting expressions of black joy and like I've seen a couple of them and they did nothing but make me happy and I Aww. feel like Aww. considering how much we really have to sit with black suffering it coming from a variety of affronts right and and I do think it's an important thing that we really do have to talk about in our country because it is part of the black, black experience 
but it's not the only part, right? No, and those absolutely not. Exactly. And those moments where you can see something that part of being black is having a lot of fun, right? Enjoying yourself, <laughs> sharing all kinds of things with other people who recognize things about the experience and, and see so many things in our culture to celebrate. And it, well, that's why everybody wants our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> our food, our clothes, our music. Yeah, <laughs> it's super fun. <laughs> yeah, I, it's lit. Exactly. You know, I, <laughs> I used to have this, this shirt 20 pounds ago um, that said, I love being black. And I, would, I don't even need to find it. I have no idea where the shirt is. If I find it, it would be totally inappropriate <laughs> at, at this level. But one of the things that I used to love wearing that shirt because I would put it on and other black people, just as I'm passing in Harlem, would smile or point or frequently say, where'd you get that shirt? And, and I think that anytime there are these things that come up that are just reminders of the fact that being black, whatever else it entails, it is a tremendous amount of fun. I love black people. <laughs> I love being around black people. Living in Harlem for the last 20 years has been such a joy. And, you know, I am really going to be seeking out a lot more of these kinds of things like that are just pure expressions of the other side of being black that I feel like isn't regularly captured by journalists, right? So I encourage mm-hmm. everybody to look this up and to celebrate what Mr. Miles has done because I think, you know, it's a it's a really awesome thing especially considering some of what's happened in the last couple of years, just to see like a pure, unadulterated and kind of unexplained expression of black people being happy. Aww. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a viral tweet I saw one time that said, I love being black. It's kind of dangerous, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think it. I think it's just so important. You know, I I feel like around the time that Twelve Years a Slave came out, I said to myself that like I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. I can't go into a theater and I just can't yeah. watch black people, black bodies yeah. just get destroyed yeah. anymore. And that's part of you know my whole sort of approach to twenty twenty one, where I'm I've given up alcohol and refined sugars and I'm working <laughs> out as much as possible because like I want to I want to destroy white supremacy. I don't want to destroy myself. How about anymore that? With all of yeah. those things. Um, and so I just think it's such a beautiful thing yeah. to be able to put that out into the world, yeah. just black joy and black laughter and black excitement. And I think it's a big part of like why the three of us are here in this space and why I'm so excited. Yeah. There's that word again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be doing this with the two of you because it brings it brings me pure black joy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Aw, the feelings mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, why don't we end this on a high note? (laughs) This virtual group hug. (laughs) All right, and we are back. So I know we are doing this sort of little best of moment best of 2021 moment but we felt like we would be remiss if we didn't come back and just give a little bit of holiday themed pure black joy this time around so i hope y'all are ready for some chocolate 
chocolate. <laughs> Dark chocolate. <laughs> if they weren't ready, they'd be listening to the wrong podcast. That so is right. They are. That's true. That is true. <laughs> but Lee, I will turn it over to you. Why, thank you. So I was reading about um, the chocolate ballerina company. Get into that name, please. Love In it. Philadelphia is presenting the region's first ever all black nutcracker. Um, so, Amazing. right? I, I mean, yes. it's the kind of thing that if I were still on the East Coast, I would hop on a train and go right over to Philly and, and see this. So the Chocolate Ballerina Company is a service organization which supports the hidden talents in youth and adult artists of color in the Philadelphia region. They are presenting this all black version of the Nutcracker, which I am pleased to share is completely sold out. Um, so why are we telling you? Because it is absolutely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> because it's and, joyous. <laughs> yes, because it made us smile. Okay? Yes, totally and being did. sold out actually made me smile even more. Absolutely, no, that we're yes. not here being like, please go see it. <laughs> that people got the message. <laughs> And it's one of those things, you know, and, you know, maybe there's a bit of the Misty Copeland effect here, but it's one of those things that makes me so excited, right? Because I think there are other young uh, boys and girls of color who are going to be exposed to the Nutcracker and ballet for the first time to this. And in a generation or so, we're going to have a couple of more very, very talented people on stage because of this production. So I really want to give kudos to artistic director Chanel Holland for some really great and thoughtful work. And, you know, hopefully next year they will do even more performances of this so more of us can mm -hmm. catch it. But just so y'all know, it is playing Sunday, December 19th at Drexel University's Mandel Theater again in Philadelphia. And it features uh, the Chocolate Ballerina Company's Premier Prima Ballerinas and Conway Academy's Ballerinas out of Washington, D.C. So big congratulations to those folks. And Woo! we are really rooting for Yay! you all the way over here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's we just we all just needed that, didn't we? <laughs> just a little bit of good news. <laughs> well, and with that, I think we will um, bid you all adieu. <laughs> um, you know, as usual, uh, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Five star reviews, please, only. Five stars. It is the holidays. I'm not going to take any, <laughs> any of this three star foolishness. <laughs> okay, thank you. Five stars. And um, we will be back, I guess, for a part two of this best of series mm -hmm. um, in a couple of weeks. And uh, we will be back with uh, brand new episodes uh, in January uh, featuring amazing people uh, like Broadway superstar, Met singer Janina Burnett, costume designer Ari yeah. Fulton, all sorts of good, amazing things coming up in 2022. And we're so excited. So hope you all have an incredible holiday, whatever you celebrate, or if you don't celebrate anything, just enjoy the break and have a happy <laughs> new year. And we will see you all soon. Happy Kwanzaa, everybody. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you soon. Bye. Bye.